Hello, and welcome to the Christian Civics Podcast, where we explore how the gospel empowers you to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. This week, we're going to have some pastoral instruction on what makes Christians unique in the public square, as well as some guidance on how to prayerfully respond to political chaos. But first, I want to start by exploring an idea that we're going to come back to again and again over the course of this podcast, the idea of holiness. That was the opening to the song Take My Life by Scott Underwood. Many of you are probably familiar with that song. A lot of you probably even sang it sometime in the past few weeks at church. But let's take a moment to talk about what the word holiness really means, to think about what we're really asking for when we sing that song. We have a tendency to probably think that the word holiness means divine or powerful or somehow greater than human or purer than human. But most literally, the Hebrew word that gave us the word holiness means distinct. It means different or easy to set apart. When scripture tells us that God is holy, it's telling us that God is, in a fundamental way, different from the other things that people worship, that he is on a foundational level, distinct from the other things people pattern their lives after. And our holy, distinct God calls us, his people, to be holy ourselves. That means that we are obligated, as part of our discipleship in Christ, to learn how to become different in conduct from the people around us. Our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues should be able to tell the difference between the way Christians think and act and speak and behave and the way non-Christians think and act and speak and behave. And that goes for every dimension of life. We're not just called to be holy in the way we raise our children. We're not just called to be holy in the way that we Uh, pursue our studies in school or the way that we conduct ourselves at work. We're not called to just be holy members of our bowling league. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are that God has placed you in a time and in a place where your community has given you some degree of civic responsibility. You're entrusted with the opportunity to take part in shaping the way your community functions. And the way you approach that needs to be holy and distinct as well. And if you're a Christian, then the way you approach that responsibility needs to be holy as well, needs to be distinct from the way non-Christians around you approach that responsibility.
So how do we do that? How do we be holy? How do we be distinct in an environment where there are non-Christians across the entire political spectrum? There are people who don't share our faith anywhere we can go in the political universe. And if we choose to sit out of the political universe entirely, there are people who don't share our faith who are doing that too. That's a big question. And it's one that, honestly, I hope you'll stick around so that we can work through it together in the weeks and months to come. By way of getting us started, I want to hand the podcast over to pastor and Center for Christian Civics board member Charles Drew. Specifically, I want to hand it over to a recording of part of a class that he taught for us in Charlottesville, Virginia in October of 2016, shortly before the presidential election. Now, I know I shared a short clip from this in our pilot episode last time, but I want to double back and share a little bit more of it now. Pastor Drew opened the class by sharing five ways that he thinks the gospel equips us to be wiser in our understanding of politics. He specifically goes on to point out five ways that Christians can be more discerning, uh, five distinctions that Christians can make as we approach the public square that will help us better honor God in the way that we think about politics and set us apart from most of our neighbors. I'll be back after this segment to discuss it a little bit more, and we still have our prayer at the end of this episode coming up, so stick around. But first, here's Pastor Drew. Uh, first of all, um, the, the distinction between public engagement narrowly defined and public engagement broadly defined. Public engagement narrowly defined is power politics. It's elections. It's the thing that we're right in the middle of right now. Now, power politics is limited. It is a blunt instrument. It's very imprecise. It is coercive. And for those three reasons, it is frustrating and sometimes infuriating. <laughs> and if that's the only way that we think in the church that we can engage with public life, we are bound to be upset with each other and with the culture. But you see, we need to broaden our definition beyond power politics to public influence. Public influence is different from power politics. It's still public, but it's not the same thing as power politics. It's open to all, and for that reason, it's less frustrating and it's irritating. Anybody can pray. Anybody can pray. A person in jail can pray. A totally disenfranchised, a 12-year-old can pray. We can, we, can, we can pray for God's will to be done and so on, and that's far more powerful than you might think. And there are all sorts of it. We can write screenplays. We can tell stories. We can do all sorts of things. We can, we can try to make public righteousness attractive by the quality of our own lives, by the way in which we live out a public righteousness that is, um, that is commendable and, and attractive and winsome. 
Um, you see, once you, once you define it that way, the heat goes down a little bit because you realize, gosh, you know, I can do, there's always something I can do that has a public bearing. Even if I don't see exactly how it's going to work, I can still do something that's valuable to God. And that's, of course, what matters the most. I don't have to just sort of say, since I don't have power, or since power is such a blunt instrument, I just have to just give up and and just say, the whole culture is going to hell in a handbasket. I'm going to move to Crozet. <laughs> and, and hide... You know, run away. I'm not suggesting that Crozet is where you go to hide, but I just thought of some place outside of Charlottesville. Um, uh, so, so then the second distinction is between um, theocracy and influence. Theocracy aims to win. That's its goal, win. And its MO is, uh, is conquest. Um, it, it is driven by results. If, if it, if you don't succeed, then you've failed in your enterprise. Now, influence is different. Influence seeks patiently to nudge the culture in the right direction by persuasion, by example, and certainly occasionally by law, because everybody legislates their values, everybody legislates morality. But it aims, unlike the theocratic aim, not to win, but to serve. Its, its MO isn't conquest, it's incarnation. That is, coming inside as a friend while taking orders from the outside. So you, you enter a party. You join the Democratic Party or the Republican Party and you become its friend. You, you, you're an insider, but you're taking your orders from outside. And as a result, you're always a little lonely. <laughs> you always, you're, you're never going to exactly fit. Uh, because, because no party or platform is ideally everything that the Lord wants or that your conscience is telling you should be. So, uh, uh, but, uh, and then finally, it's driven not by results, but by faithfulness. If there is progress and success in your political endeavors, um, then that's wonderful. But if there's no success, and in fact, if there's suffering as a result of your endeavors, that's okay, too, because you're not in charge of results. God is in charge of results. You and I are in charge of faithfulness. So what's at stake here, you see, is faithfulness, not success. And I fear that uh, that we all, everyone's into winning. Everyone's into succeeding. That's part of what drives the polarization of the culture. And Christians drink this in. We breathe this in. This is in the atmosphere that we know. And we slip into it. And it becomes the thing that's driving us in our political and social undertaking. So then, let me keep moving on. Number three, a distinction that has to do with motivation. Uh, between love and hope on the one hand and fear on the other hand. And I'm not even going to go into that, but just think about that. What motivates your political and social activity, whatever it is? What motivates it? Is it love or is it fear? I don't think fear is a proper motivation for any activity by a Christian. I'll just state it that bluntly. I just don't, and I'm not making, I'm not saying anything about political parties right here. I'm just talking about general truth. We, we're, we're not supposed to be driven by fear. Uh, we, our Jesus is the Lord. Jesus loves us. We're safe even if we die. <laughs> right? So why are we afraid? We mustn't be afraid. For, for fear is a, so, uh, uh, love, love is what should drive us and hope that Jesus is the Lord and he's gonna fix things in his own way, in his own time. He's gonna fix it. You know, so we have hope. Even as we work, even as we fail, we still have hope. And, and love is interesting because, 
because um, uh, the dictates of love for person A may lead him to one political solution, and the dictates of love for person B may lead him to a different one. So love doesn't 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 line up Republican Democrat, but it 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 is very important to understand that love has to be what motivates us, and hope has to be what motivates us rather than fear. So. Um, I, I said I wasn't going to spend time in that. I just did. I just lied. Okay, number four, all right? Number four, uh, and this is a very helpful calling also, a, di a, di a distinction between the calling of the church as the church and the calling of individual Christians. It's kind of similar to the first one, but I think it's, it's a little different. Think about the callings of the church. What, what is Trinity? What are the absolute essential callings of Trinity Presbyterian Church? The de at the, in the deepest level, what is the calling of the church? It's essentially two things. It's to pray down the kingdom of God. If the church doesn't pray for the kingdom of God to come, guess what? Nobody's going to. It's an essential calling of the church because your Muslim friends are not going to pray for the kingdom of God to come in Jesus Christ. Your secular friends aren't going to pray at all. Your Jewish friends aren't going to pray for the kingdom of God to come. The only People who are going to pray for the kingdom of God to come are, are in the way that Jesus commands us to are, the, are Christians. So if we don't do it, it's not going to get done. It's that important. And then secondly, the second calling of the church is to disciple the nations. Jesus' great commission, Matthew 28, which includes serving the poor in the name of Jesus. A lot of people are serving the poor. No one serves the poor in the name of Jesus. <laughs> no, one, and, and, uh, and disciple, no one is going to disciple the nations if the church doesn't disciple the nations. So what this means is this. If a, if a church gets, um, gets drawn off by giving an enormous amount of attention to political issues, to, it's going to basically have its energy drained from these two absolutely essential things the church must be sure it does. I'm not saying, therefore, the church should withdraw but I am saying, bear in mind what our priorities are in terms of what we need to do. Then, the, on the other hand, we have the calling of individuals. Now, those are not just two. Those are incredibly varied. They depend on season of life. They depend on your motivations, your abilities, your training, opportunities, and so on and so forth. I'm about to retire. And Jeannie and I were just talking about what's our next adventure. So you're driving down here interminably on Route 81 yeah, last night. Um, and as we were thinking about what we're going to do, you know, we, we, we don't know. But, but one thing we do know is we'll have more time. We're about to enter a different season of life than the season that we've been in. And that has repercussions for public, for life of, at every level, including public life. So, so, so given this fact that the callings of individual Christians, given their gifts, training, abilities, and season of life, given the fact that they're varied, um, the church has a, a particular responsibility to encourage and release its people to be faithful stewards of their particular and varied gifts and opportunities, not privileging, privileging one particular calling over another. See, here's, what's hap here's what happens. Person A becomes totally gripped by the Spirit's call upon their life to do X. And that's wonderful. But the mistake that person A makes sometimes is to think, well, this calling is so strong in my life, it clearly needs to be the calling of everybody else in my church. And so they make all sorts of noise and racket and they make people who don't have that calling feel guilty and like second-class citizens and you don't love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you would do this thing that I'm doing and so on and so forth. And the church actually, its leadership has an obligation to say, whoa, 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 don't do that. Don't do that to each other. 
Don't do that to each other. It, 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 it doesn't say, we're not supposed to say, um, don't talk about these things. Of course talk about them. If I have a burden about something, I have every right to tell anybody, to tell Bill what my burden is and seek to persuade him to join me in the cause. But I, I have to, I have to stop at the point where, um, uh, where, where I start to suggest to Bill that unless you follow suit in what's important to me, you're a second class Christian. You're not really following the Lord. Uh, and that happens so subtly. It happens in the church. And I think we have to be, give, we have to give each other freedom when it comes to our callings and our consciousness. So anyway, finally, the last one that I said we we're going to spend all our time on, and um, actually I'm going to give you a small group opportunity on this one. This is a distinction between moral principle on the one hand and political strategy on the other hand. Um, now let me, let me define what I mean. Moral principle is the high commands of God, the Ten Commandments, care for the poor, Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The church has to, you know, the church has to be unapologetic about teaching that stuff. Certainly to its people. Uh, without question. You know, don't back off because you may be a politic, feeling like you're getting politically nervous, you know. Um, uh, but political strategy is a different beast. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the two, but it's very important to try. Um, political strategy, political strategies are the fallible human efforts to move the culture in the direction of greater conformity to moral principles. Right, that was Pastor Charles Drew. I was really moved by his reminder that if the church doesn't pray for God's kingdom to come, then no one will. Your kingdom come is one of only like four or five things that Jesus asks for in his model prayer for us in the Lord's Prayer. But it's probably one of the things I know I'm most likely to forget when I pray. Asking God for daily bread or even for forgiveness and the ability to forgive others comes a lot more naturally to me than asking him to bring his kingdom. So I'm really grateful for that reminder. A lot of the ideas Pastor Drew laid out in there are ideas we'll dive into a little bit more in the future. But for now, we have some articles on the Christian Civics blog that I'll link off to in the episode notes if you're interested in learning more. We actually have articles titled The Calling of a Church and The Calling of a Christian and The Difference Between Theocracy and Influence. I'll link to those on the site. I'll also link off to an article on using fear in political campaigns and one where we look at the ways different people might have different callings in the public square. Next up, for our last segment this episode... I'm going to ask you to spend some time with me in scripture reading and in prayer. I'm going to read a passage from Mark chapter 4, a very famous passage about Jesus calming a storm. And then I'm going to ask you to spend some time praying with me about how we can respond to some of the storms that might come up in our uh, country's politics and government. So, if you will, please join me in reading Mark chapter 4 verses 35 to 41. On that day, when evening came, 
he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the God who, with a word, can calm the storms. You are the God who can make the sea that ancient symbol of danger and chaos, still as glass. More than that, you have promised to wipe away that chaos when your Son, our great and glorious King, returns. You have called your people to let that knowledge make us holy. You have called us to live distinct lives because of the trust you ask us to have in your promises and power. You tell us to think and behave differently from our neighbors because of the courage we should take from the knowledge that a kingdom without chaos is fast approaching. We're sorry that we don't. We can point to the news media, to campaign speeches, to clickbait and algorithms and even real, honest-to-goodness danger and social instability as the reasons we don't take heart when we should, as the reasons we tend to forget your promises and power. And all of those things certainly don't help, but the fact is that our hearts are prone to wander even without much help going astray. It's a poor witness, and your love and grace deserve better testimonies than that from us. Thank you, though, that our weak faith won't hinder your strong hand. No matter how unstable the world around us may seem, your Son is coming, and the true and lasting government is resting on his shoulders. For now, when we are living in the already but not yet, we ask you to give us foretastes of that coming kingdom and empower us to be agents of healing and mercy so that our neighbors can experience it as well. We're asking you to please let your kingdom come. We especially pray for our brothers and sisters who work in government in Washington, D.C., in our state capitals, in our city halls, and throughout our communities. Thank you for putting Christians in positions where they get to do some of the day-to-day -day work of government. We pray that you bless them with wisdom and insight. Strengthen their hearts with courage so that through their work they can demonstrate to the non-Christians around them some shadow 
of the mercy and justice and compassion and wisdom and stability that your son will govern with when the kingdom comes. And we pray for the men and women who work in government who don't yet know you. We ask that through their work, they can catch a glimpse of what it means to be made in your image. And that by that, they would be inspired to bring peace where there is tumult, security where there is fear, justice where there is a lack of it. And we pray for ourselves as residents and citizens who can participate in public engagement broadly defined. Teach us how to be your hands and feet in our neighborhoods, in our towns, in our states. Not instituting a theocracy, but shining as lamps on stands amongst every tribe and tongue, so that by our light, by the light of your spirit in us, the other people around us can see more clearly. We pray all of these things for the glory of your Son, whose name we bear and whose banner we carry. Amen. That's it for this episode. Thank you all very much for joining us. Join us again in two weeks when our guest will be Dr. Peter Baker, the director of the American Studies Program at the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. We'll be bringing that episode to you around June 12th or 13th. And that's also when we'll be making this podcast available on every major podcast platform. So if you're listening to us then, please look for us on iTunes or Apple Podcast and rate, review, subscribe, go the whole nine yards. It'll really help us out. And if you have any questions about what you heard today or you want to dive a little deeper into some of these ideas, please be sure to check out our blog, our newsletter, and the resources that we have available on our website at christiancivics.org. Lastly, if you have any questions or any topics that you'd like to hear us cover in future episodes, feel free to drop us an email at info at christiancivics.org. Thank you very much for being with us today. We really appreciate your support. We hope this was an encouragement to you. And we can't wait to get back to you in two weeks.